Thanks for joining us on the King Law Podcast, where we give you a lawyer's perspective on anything legal or not. From criminal law, personal injury, and trending legal topics, we're your back pocket legal guide. So this is Bree. This is who you've been Hi. emailing with. And she does. She Hi, does, nice to meet you. She does everything. Oh, I'm sorry. You were saying nice things about me? Yes, everything. She does everything, including this. I don't know if I told you it would be more than just me, but uh, Bree and I do them all together. Yeah. You want to start it off? Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Introduce. I'm going to put these on. Go ahead. Okay, so we are here today with Nicole. And we're going to talk a little bit about you and a little bit about a case that we're working together on, the, the Gardasil case. So introduce yourself to uh, the world. Great. Hi, everyone. My name is Nicole Lovett. I am a, an attorney with Morgan & Morgan. I am based out of the Tampa office near St. Petersburg, Florida, where I was born and raised. Um, my experience has been solely focused on mass tort cases where I have handled and been an integral part in a number of litigations from case inception to settlement, representing thousands of clients wrongfully harmed by a pharmaceutical drug, medical device, or vaccine. Um, and in January of this year, I was appointed to the Plaintiff's Executive Committee for the Gardasil MDL, consolidated in front of the Honorable Judge Conrad in the Western District of North Carolina. And I'm excited to talk with you all about Gardasil today. So uh, we do a fair bit of, of MDL work ourselves. We are teamed up with Morgan and Morgan and you and, and your, your guys specifically. So excited to be here and um, a, a lot of questions to cover today. But let's just start out with you a little bit. How did you end up um, lovely experience we'll we'll link to your bio and and done a, a whole lot for an attorney um how'd you get here where did you go to school and how did you uh decide you want to go to law school yeah um so i uh went to university of florida for undergrad um i had i've always had a desire to become an attorney um, my background is a lot in theater, and I enjoy the performance aspect and public speaking. Um, and so I always have had this desire, and most importantly, to help other people. And so becoming an attorney really checked all of the boxes for me in terms of what I was interested in. While I was in undergrad, um, I knew of a lawyer in the mass tort department at Morgan & Morgan, and I asked and interviewed to intern, and I assisted paralegals through the mass tort department during my summers of undergrad. Um, I was continually asked back, and then I came back to the Tampa Bay area to start law school. Um, while I did so, I contemporaneously continued my work with the Mass Tort Department at Morgan & Morgan. Um, and so I really have seen every facet of a mass tort case, from working the intake to case review, medical record review, preparing the case for filing, and all the way through the end. Um, 
following my time at Stetson University College of Law for law school, um, I took the bar and became a licensed attorney and was offered a position as an attorney with the department, which I very happily took. And it has been a match made in heaven ever since. What do you enjoy the most about the mass torts? It's a great question. Um, I most enjoy being able to help people on a really wide scale. Um, mass tort cases are individual personal injury lawsuits, but they are consolidated with a wide variety of people that have all been affected by a product, medical device, or vaccine. And you really get to get to help them and be their voice when they can't have one against some of the biggest manufacturers um, and biggest drug companies in the world. Um, you know, one thing that I always remind myself is that, you know, I get to help so many people and I'm a lawyer for thousands of plaintiffs, but to them, I am their only lawyer. And so I think it's really important to remember the role that that we have as mass tort attorneys um, and being that individual voice for all of our clients. And I really, you know, I enjoy the organization of mass tort cases. Um, I enjoy practicing in federal court. And I really enjoy, most importantly, getting to help so many people in any given case. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I'll speak for myself, but to the to the law students that are listening and the people who don't know they're thinking about law school, it's really the highest end of litigation that I've ever personally seen. You have uh, a team of brilliant lawyers. So you talk about you're on an executive committee or you're on um, working on a plaintiff steering committee or something like that. And, and we're involved in some of that. Little shout out to uh, Tim and Brett and uh, Kelsey, they're doing the, the hernia mesh trial right now, thinking of them, of course, but um, to be part of a group of lawyers from all over the country who have a common goal to go against um, someone who has, in our opinion, hurt thousands of people. And mm -hmm. we get documents, so, so we're going through documents right now in the Covidian case, uh, 1.2 million documents that's that's not pages that's different documents and we're going to go through that and all those documents are going to get reviewed and we're going to try to hold someone accountable who who knew that what they were doing was not okay in our opinion and, and we're going to go to court we know the case is going to be tried and this group of people is coming together with a common goal i think it's really consistent with my background um and, and it sounds like yours too where yeah, you're working with Morgan and Morgan, but you're also working with a whole bunch of other law firms, our firm in this case, and in other cases, you, you meet all these really smart people and from different areas and walks of life and geographic areas. We're working Mike Staggs in New Orleans, our buddy, mm -hmm. and you get to meet great lawyers and, and I think litigate at the highest level. When you go to law school, you think about really every deposition matters. Every document matters and any, I mean, no one person can read 1.2 million documents. You can't do it. You have to work with other people and other firms. 
Yeah, it's a it's a really collaborative and team effort. And you're exactly right. I mean, majority of the attorneys that I work with are not at my firm. Um, it's all of these other exceptionally brilliant lawyers all throughout the country. And we are all working for the common benefit of all plaintiffs, not just the plaintiffs that I also personally represent at Morgan and Morgan, but for, but plaintiffs throughout the entire litigation. And it's a it's a huge honor to do so. Well, we brought you on to talk about a specific mass mass tort. Let's talk about Gardasil. I feel like this is a very interesting topic. What is the Gardasil vaccine? So the Gardasil vaccine is a vaccine that is claimed to prevent certain types of the HPV virus. Um, what's important to know, though, from our vantage point is that there are over 200 types of the HPV virus. Yet the current version of Gardasil, at best, claims to only offer protection against nine strains. Furthermore, only 12 to 18 types of HPV are considered to be potentially associated with cervical or anal cancer. You know, when we talk about HPV generally, it's important to note that HPV is considered to some the most common sexually transmitted disease and for the most part is completely benign, um, meaning that more than 90% of HPV infections cause no clinical symptoms. They are self-limited, they are removed from the human body by its own immunological mechanisms, and they disappear naturally from the body following an infection. And not every HPV infection puts someone at risk for cervical cancer. Um, only persistent HPV infections over a long period of time in a limited number of cases where certain strains may later develop into precancerous lesions. With respect to cervical cancer, these precancerous lesions are typically diagnosed through pap smears um, and then are removed through medical procedures. However, when undiagnosed, they may, in some cases, progress to cervical cancer in some women. Um, pap smears, as a side note, have been long recommended by public health officials to detect abnormalities in cervical tissue, um, and it's considered one of the most effective ways, um, most effective frontline public health responses to this disease. And so for those that are diagnosed, cervical cancer can be largely treatable, um, it has a five-year survival rate of over 90% when cancer is caught early. And similarly, anal cancer is even more rare. According to data, approximately 0.2% of people will be diagnosed with anal cancer in their lifetime. You know, so this is a, a vaccine that is, you know, purports to prevent an infection that typically goes away on its own. So... Tell us a little, if you can, the story about how Morgan & Morgan got involved in Gardasil and, and what's going on with the litigation right now. So we were, um, some of that predates my time on the project. Um, and so I'll speak somewhat generally. Um, we were We got involved in some of the state court cases that were pending out in California. Um, with the Wisner Baum law firm. And then as more cases started to get filed nationally, um, we 
petition to the JPML um, to have a federal consolidated action for Gardasil. Um, that was it was consolidated by the panel. And as mentioned, that is in front of Judge Conrad in the Western District of North Carolina. Um, right now, what's happening in the MDL? Um, in the MDL, the judge has bifurcated dis uh, causation in this case. And so right now, we are focused on general causation. Um, with that said, we also have a bellwether pool of 16 cases that are primarily focused on POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and primary ovarian failure. So currently, we are undergoing corporate discovery. We have a ton of documents, as you mentioned, that we are going through with more to be produced. Um, we're taking witness or taking depositions of Merck corporate witnesses. And then simultaneously, we are also doing fact discovery on those 16 bellwether cases. I'm trying to think. So talking well, about everybody wants to know you, yeah. you, you're doing this every day. You're working on this every day. Is Gardasil safe? Would you recommend it to your friends or family? That is, um, that's a good question. So what we believe that we will prove is that there are a wide variety of health risks that are in our view linked to the Gardasil vaccine. Um, and we believe we will prove that Gardasil induces and increases the risk of autoimmune disease. So we're alleging that Gardasil and you know the vaccine has been linked to a myriad of autoimmune disorders, including but not limited to postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, also known as POTS, orthostatic intolerance, dysautonomia, um, primary ovarian failure, and among other many other autoimmune disorders. Um, and I can talk a little bit about what those you know injuries are, but it's our view and what we intend to prove is that this vaccine's strong immune stimulating ingredients can cause autoimmune disorders. Um, it's our belief, supported by our experts, that the aluminum adjuvant in the vaccine can induce autoimmune disease. We believe this occurs because adjuvants, such as aluminum, are inflammatory substances that hyperactivate the immune system. Um, while adjuvants are added with the intent of destroying the HPV virus, we intend to prove that they can also have unintended result of rendering the immune system blind um, and unable to distinguish human proteins from HPV proteins. Where And so what happens accordingly is that the human proteins that share the same sequences with the HPV proteins are at risk or being attacked by the vaccine, therefore inducing an autoimmune reaction. Can this also cause cancer or infertility? Thank you. <laughs> Endometriosis or birth defects? Yeah, and so I can talk a little bit about that. Um, I guess I'll I'll start with infertility first, or I can talk about you know if it can cause cancer, whichever you prefer. I mean, as mentioned. Um, Previously, one of the primary injuries that we're looking at right now in the Bellwether program is primary ovarian failure and infertility. 
Um, it's our view supported by our experts and what we believe and intend to prove is that Gardasil is causing premature ovarian failure as a result of the aluminum adjuvant in the vaccine destroying the maturation process of the eggs in the ovaries. Um, in terms of whether or not Gardasil can cause cancer, it is our opinion that it's possible. There's a suggestion that the suppression of HPV strains targeted by the Gardasil vaccine may actually open the ecological niche for replacement by more virulent strains. In other words, we believe that Gardasil may increase the chances of getting cancer. Um, in short, we believe that these Gardasil vaccines, which are marketed as anti-cancer products, may themselves cause cancer or cause changes that can lead to cancer. Um, you know, I, I also recall you saying whether or not Gardasil can cause endometriosis. We don't know of any cases um, or people pursuing that injury, so we have not evaluated whether or not that might be an effect or not from the vaccine. So are they still giving the vaccine? They are. And they is are. it the same formula from when it first came out? Uh, not necessarily because the current Gardasil vaccine is Gardasil 9, and I can talk a little bit about the approval history of Gardasil um, the one that was approved by the FDA in 2006, which is the original Gardasil or Gardasil 4, um, that was for four HPV strains. The current Gardasil vaccine on the market is Gardasil 9. Um, so the FDA initially approved Gardasil in June of 2006. Um, it was approved under a fast track status. Which, which speed, yeah, it speeds the approval process um, to a six-month period. In 2000, June of 2006, after this fast-track approval, Gardasil was approved in females ages 9 through 26 for the purported prevention of cervical cancer, and almost immediately thereafter was recommended by the CDC for routine vaccination of adolescent girls ages 11 to 12 years old, but allowed to be administered to girls as young as nine. Later in 2009, the FDA approved Gardasil for use in boys ages nine through 26 for the prevention of genital warts caused by HPV types six and 11. In December of 2010, Gardasil was approved for the purported prevention of anal cancer and female in males and females um, ages nine through 26. Subsequently, as mentioned earlier, uh, Merck sought approval for Gardasil 9. This contains the same ingredients as Gardasil 4, but in higher quantities. This purportedly guards against five additional HPV strains currently associated with cervical cancer and anal cancer, or believed to be associated with cervical cancer and anal cancer. Um, and so that was approved in December of 2014 for use in girls ages nine through 26, boys ages nine through 15 um, for the prevention of cervical, vaginal, and anal cancers. 
Presently, today, Gardasil 9 has been approved for and is being marketed to men and women ages 9 to 45 years of age, um, with an emphasis in our view on marketing um, to preteen children and their parents. The FDA has also recently approved on an accelerated basis, Gardasil 9 for the prevention of oropharyngeal and other head and neck cancers. So they're still approved by the F FDA. Okay. And still actively marketed. And, and were the prior vaccines discontinued? Uh, the original Gardasil vaccine for the four strains is no longer, is no longer used in the market. Gardasil or is it recalled or have they ever been recalled? No, not recalled. Um, just simply, you know, Gardasil 9 includes the same four strains that the original Gardasil um, was indicated for. And so this new version is the same four, just plus five additional strains. Okay. Um, Let's talk. This is a different MDL. Um, even for our lawyers who do MDLs, I know we looked at at doing this case ourselves, and we eventually partnered with Morgan and Morgan uh, because this is a different beast. You have vaccine court. Can you just explain a little bit about why this case is different and kind of what vaccine court is and kind of what that means for your case and for people if they want to file a claim, you know, with with you or us or their lawyer? Absolutely. Um, so the United States government set up the national vaccine injury compensation program or the VICP. Um, this is more simply known as vaccine court for people who sustain injuries, certain injuries or health issues after receiving a covered vaccine. Um, and this is to submit a claim for compensation. The HPV vaccine Gardasil is one of the covered vaccines in the vaccine court. And so there's a, a table um, We're our, having our fire, uh, fire drill. drills going off. <laughs> All right. I'll stay here and um, wait till you guys get back. 20 minutes later. Is she still there? Uh, no. Nicole. I'm here. All there right. you are. We lived. <laughs> I didn't see any fire. Great. Ne neither did we. <laughs> the only fire is this podcast. <laughs> Oh, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> and then she leaves. Yes. Um, do you want to start? Yeah, let's start again. Question again. What were we talking about? We're, we're, so <laughs> this MDL is different than a lot of MDLs. And tell us a little bit about vaccine court and how to file a claim in this case as opposed to other cases. Very, very unique set of facts and circumstances. Correct. Um, so the United States government set up what's known as the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. Um, it's more simply known as vaccine court, and it is for people who sustain certain injuries or health issues after receiving a covered vaccine to submit a claim for compensation. Um, Gardasil is considered a tabled vaccine because it is on the vaccine injury table. What that means is that before I can file or anyone can file a case in state or federal court against the drug manufacturer, in this case Merck, you first have to file a claim in vaccine court. Um, 
you know, you a petition is filed through your vaccine attorney in the Court of Federal Claims. Petitioner may receive a judgment from the special master that's assigned to your case in vaccine court, or after a statutory time frame of 240 days, you may opt out or exit vaccine court to then bring a civil action for damages against the vaccine manufacturer in state or federal court. Um, I think really interestingly and very strict part of this process is the statute of limitations that is in vaccine court. So a vaccine claim in the VICP is governed by a statute of limitations that limits the time within someone can file a petition. Um, and even when the injured person has no idea what caused um, their harm. And so that claim must be filed within three years from the onset of symptoms. Do you need all three shots to qualify? You do not. Um, injury can happen after any one of the three shots, in our opinion. Um, we believe that um, injury can occur after your first Gardasil vaccination or after your third. Gotcha. Yeah, because like for me, I had two and I was obviously a teen and my mom started reading about it and she was like, you're absolutely never getting the third one. I was like, okay. So, I mean, I didn't have all of them, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if there's probably a lot of people that haven't had all of them either. Um, certainly there are, you know, there are some people out there that have only received one Gardasil vaccination for one reason or another. Um, so who qualifies for this? Yeah, um, individuals um, or cases that we're evaluating um, are ones where they've received the Gardasil vaccination and within a relatively short amount of time after the Gardasil vaccine, um, they have suffered a, a version of an autoimmune um, reaction or disorder, as mentioned previously, similar to POTS, orthostatic intolerance, other autoimmune reactions, um, primary ovarian failure, um, and those are the cases that we're, we're looking at. Do you think more will come up, more um, symptoms or, or signs that the Gardasil shot maybe affected them? Um, that's hard to say. You know, right now we have over 100 cases filed in the MDL. We have about 150 more cases that will be filed in the MDL in the coming weeks, um, with many more cases after that. So one of the weird things with the statute of limitation is how you measure in, in different states and federal court have rules about minors. And in, in this case, the minor because you're in vaccine court, it doesn't do the same things. It's not treated the same, is that right? Correct, and so a lot of states offer what's known as minor tolling, where the statute is told until the injured plaintiff reaches the age of majority. In most cases, that's 18 years of age. Um, however, because this vaccine is tabled under the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, um, the strict statute of limitations of within three years of onset of symptoms does not um, allow for minor tolling. Like it, is, it is strict, it's within three years. So how, so we talk about that mass torts, they go on for a really long time. Do you have a timeline? 
of when this will finish. <laughs> what can people expect? Yeah. They call you, this is not going to be done next week. I can pretty much tell you that part. Right. Um, so it's really unknown the length of time that this is going to take. As I mentioned earlier, um, causation was bifurcated um, into general, and then later we'll address specific causation, assuming we overcome the hurdles in front of us for general causation. Um, we have to prove our case. We think we will, or we wouldn't be doing it. Um, should we prove our case, the, you know, the injury is substantial, but there's a lot of legal hurdles to overcome and a lot of uncertainty. So right now, our schedule is looking that general causation will um, come next year sometime, um, probably towards the late of next year. And so once we overcome that hurdle, we'll, we'll go from there. What do you think about settlement amounts? <laughs> Very similar to what I just yeah mentioned, you know, we still have so many hurdles to overcome um, and we're still in the midst of corporate discovery and bellwether case specific fact discovery that it's really unknown what a settlement amount would look like at this time. It's interesting because it's just like how what's the cutoff point as well for a lawsuit like this when they're still giving the vaccine out. It's kind of like indefinite, right? Um, well, you know, right. So there, it's our opinion that there are going to be, you know, a lot of injured plaintiffs because they are still giving the vaccine. There's more every day. I mean, and we're doing a bunch of work in hernia mesh. Hernia mesh is still getting implanted every day. It's the most common surgery. And every day there's more people that are hurt. Same thing with Gardasil and the people who had the vaccine last year, or the next year, if they're injured, that that number continues to grow. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think with, maybe you answered this and I forgot during the fire drill. Um, you said that the FDA approved it and it was kind of fast tracked, but why? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so with a, a fast track, it's an approval process through the FDA designed to facilitate the development of drugs. Um, it expedites the review process, and it's in order to treat serious conditions and fill in unmet medical need. Okay. So and so that was applied for. So if you were talking to, you've started out, I mean, it's a really great story going from really the mail room to the courtroom, right? Um, mm -hmm. So what advice would you give to an undergraduate who thinks they might want to be a lawyer? Um, well, I would probably say, you know, because my circumstances of how I got to where I am now are somewhat unique. I mean, I've worked at the same law firm my entire legal career. Um, and so my advice would be, don't be afraid to find something early on and stick with it if it feels right. Um, I feel fortunate that I found Morgan & Morgan early in my legal career. I immediately felt passionate about the work that I was doing. Um, and so, you know, I, I did receive kind of, you know, maybe test other things out or see what else is out there, you know, sticking with what you first started with and then making a career out of it. Um, you know, I think that in some circumstances that, 
that works. And, um, and in my opinion, it worked really well for me because like you said, I've been able to see it from every different perspective from the bottom all the way to the top. Do you want to tell us like how your responsibility have changed though, from being a clerk to a first year to a third year. And now you're, you know, really experienced attorney, but that progression as an attorney and, and really as a person at Morgan Morgan, what's that looked like for you? Um, that's a good question. You know, I definitely think it comes with obviously more responsibility. Um, you know, my day-to-day today looks different than my day-to-day then because, you know, in the beginning, I, you know, certainly was much more focused on the the cases that Morgan and Morgan specifically and those plaintiffs that they represent and working each case up individually. Whereas now I still do that, but I have the added experience of doing that national work that we were talking about earlier, working with all of these other lawyers throughout the country um, and working on behalf of all plaintiffs in the litigation, not just Morgan and Morgan plaintiffs. I think something we all have done our kind of 10,000 hours to, if you're doing, you know, more experienced lawyers that we have on the podcast and everybody's background is a little bit different. We all have something in common. That's how I find you. And we, we talk to you, but the, the fact, um, that you really work through one, I think you're probably the only person we've ever had with this experience level, who's gone right in the same firm. And I think it speaks really highly to your firm that they have allowed you to progress professionally. Um, the bosses that you've had, the management that you've had, they, they're able Absolutely. to take take a young lawyer and give them enough room to spread their wings and, and progress. And what you see a lot of is lawyers who work for a year or three or four and then jump and then work at the next firm for four or five years and then end up as a senior lawyer because the firm doesn't give them that opportunity for personal growth. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe you could talk a little about some of the the bosses or um, supervisors that, you know, I don't know if there's a story or something that you remember where you're like, oh, man, I'm I'm growing or they're letting me grow. Yeah, no, um, I have been very fortunate and I consider myself very blessed and lucky to say that I have worked at the same firm for over 10 years. Um, I have had two partners that have been instrumental in my ability to grow. Um, Paul Pennock, who is co-lead counsel of the Gardasil MDL, um, when he came to Morgan and Morgan and he and I started working together, he has really um, given me the ability to elevate myself in terms of a, a leadership role in these litigations. And then initially it was Michael Getz. Um, he also is in our, a partner in our mass tort department. He's who first hired me um, as that intern in undergraduate school. And he is who I have worked lock and step with um, for a majority of my career at Morgan & Morgan. And so I really have been exceptionally blessed to have both of them as mentors um, to me in this profession, profession because they're both very well-experienced mass tort lawyers and they are committed to the success of those on their team and elevating them in ways to have these types of experiences and be appointed to you know, leadership committees and, and really working on that national stage. I think it's hard and it's something, you have these really great trial lawyers and, and any trial lawyer who is any good has a little bit of ego and they have a little bit of 
um, grind and you get promoted at an office like yours and maybe you don't have that leadership experience and it's not always a natural transition for people in that role um, to bring along other people to be a teammate instead of just the army of one and that's you know it feels good to me uh, to be part of a team and i think for the lawyers who are out there who haven't been part of mass torts or young lawyers who are trying to find their place there is a team atmosphere here uh, because it's so big you have to become part of a team um, and it, we try to talk about it to, to the people. There's more than just um, working on your own and being a solo practitioner or being a trial lawyer. There, You can be a trial lawyer and be part of a really big team. Um, mm -hmm. and, and everybody can be successful. We work at different firms and we're in some ways, in some cases, competing for clients. Everybody has clients. We all work together and it, and it really benefits everyone and we all um, can make a living and do all that you kind bring of stuff too each of your strengths to the table to get something accomplished? The cases are so big. There's so many people and to go against a Johnson and Johnson or a Merck, they are many billions of dollars per quarter they're making. They're going to hire the biggest and the most defense attorneys. And it's very difficult for any one lawyer to take on that Fortune 100 company. But right. I mean. Mass tort, it's a team sport. You know, we are all working towards the the same goal. And as you mentioned, as Brie mentioned, you know, we all have different strengths. We all have different things that we bring to the table. And it's identifying those strengths and figuring out how all of those puzzles fit together that make us successful as a team. Is your M necklace for Morgan and Morgan? <laughs> <laughs> no, my M necklace is for my son, Miles. Aw. I was going to say, just tell him it's yeah. Morgan and Morgan. Oh. <laughs> but for anyone listening, yes, it's Morgan and Morgan too. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, um, we joke because my son's name is Miles Dale, love it. And his initials are MDL. Oh, oh my gosh, that's perfect. That's fake. It was unintentional and something we realized after um, we had decided on his name, um, which is both uh, a family-oriented name. And, and then once I put it together, I was like, all right, this is a match made in heaven. Maybe he'll become an attorney too. Maybe. Yeah, it's always a little bit of a balance. I'm way... I really like talking about people's story and everyone's story. We always ask about it. They're all so different and it's, we're doing relatively similar work. And I mean, we, we haven't had to. It's interesting because each attorney that we've interviewed has a different story and different perspectives, but there's also a lot of similarities. And it's, it's really interesting just to see. What kind of like area did you grow up in as a high school student? Um, in terms of what demographics? Yeah, or, like how big? Yeah. So I, um, it was in St. Pete uh, or St. Petersburg, Florida. I actually was in a medical magnet. I thought initially in high school that I wanted to do something in the medical field. And ultimately I did end up somewhat in that realm just by virtue of, you know, the type of litigation we do in mass torts. Um, and so it was a, it was a large public high school. Um, did you play then, sports? What's that? Did you ever play sports or anything? No, I was really, I was a theater nerd. 
through okay. and through, all through since I was a, a kid um, in theater camps every summer. Um, I competed with my um, with my school in high school um, in state competitions, and then um, I minored in it uh, while I was at University of Florida. So were you like a trial team, law school trial team kind of person? So I was not on our trial team at, at Stetson, um, but really it was because I was also working already at Morgan and Morgan and, you know, we're the, one of the, the largest plaintiff injury firm in the world. Um, and so I was getting a ton of great experience just by virtue of where I was working. And so when I wasn't studying, a lot of my time was focused um, already working at, at Morgan. Yeah. So two women who we know, uh, Kitty, Judge Kitty, mm-hmm. Christy, and Desiree were both like performers as young, whether it's plays or singing or all that stuff. And I, I think they think that a trial is a performance and they love it. They're like phenomenal t- trial lawyers. And and then we have like the kind of group of people that were high school athletes, hockey mm-hmm. players who want to go kill their adversaries. Like, like, uh, <laughs> competition. Matt Riches. Of so the both world. of you guys make a um, great team together. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the really good trial lawyers too. There's a lot of them in, in you're a little bit different is that there's some that come from really small rural areas. Um, mm-hmm. A whole bunch of our, our people there. I mean, it really, I guess it's, well, they come from yeah, me, <laughs> Nobles, Christy. Right. Um, I know Brett Vaughn's from a really small town mm-hmm. and they're, they're up against these, these huge cases. And you think that, you know, they're from Honeyway, New York, or yeah, like me, Ontario. Or but that's whatever. why I'm, I asked, like, did you play sports? But theater, it's the same thing. You still need, like, a sense of competitiveness, but also you need to work with each other to get something accomplished, which I think in turn helps you in life. Right, and it's it's storytelling. You know, we're telling a story, and we are, you know, from a from the start to the end, both in trial and in theater, you kind of go through a narrative where you're trying to convey something to an audience or to a jury. And I think there are a lot of parallels um, between the two. In, in the preparation in order to tell the story. And the story is told by words, but it's also told by body language. It's also told by mannerisms. And I think if you're standing in front of a jury, they know if you believe it, or at least they think they know if you believe it. And and how are you um, conveying your presence when you walk into the courtroom? How are you conveying your presence the way you interact with the deputies on breaks? There's all these little things that are more than just, I can read the law, I can enter the evidence, right. I can do this stuff, but how do you, how do you create that feeling in whether your audience is the audience or the judge or the jury or you know the secret is we we're going to go to defense counsel and ask them for a whole lot of money someday well you know sometimes you hear plaintiff's lawyers say my adversary is my best friend that's the guy who's going to get the case done for me how do you convince your adversary that they should settle the case instead of try a hundred cases mm-hmm. no i agree um you know it, it really all goes back to the level of, you know, playing on the team and, you know, to your earlier point about how many of us have, you know, played sports. Um, I think that it is how you conduct yourself and making sure that 
you know, that you're nice and that you, you know, do things honestly and fairly and you tell the truth and you work on behalf of your client um, and you're cordial with the other side. I mean, I think that there's a lot, um, you know, to to being friendly with everyone, you know, but being strong and determined and sticking up for what you believe is right and believing, you know, what it is, um, but not to the detriment of not working collaborative collaboratively with everyone. I'm good. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Thank you so much for coming. On. Yeah, absolutely. This was fun. Um, and if there are any other cases we work on together in the future, and you want to have me back, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> See you guys soon. Bye. That concludes this episode of the King Law Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe and check out our socials at King Law Attorneys. And if you've happened to have been injured or charged with a crime, now you know who to call. King Law. Take charge.